We Made This. Hello everyone, this is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you just listened to, or maybe you're just about to listen to. We're not going anywhere, but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash we made this and get the ball rolling. Now, back to your scheduled programming. Welcome everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And in this episode, our first of 2021, a brand new year, we're going to look back at the year that was 2020 in film music and a little bit of TV and pick out um, throughout the year our favourite selections in what is easily the most disrupted year for entertainment in history. So, <laughs> that's an understatement. <laughs> that, is, that, that is an understatement. Now, last year, Sean, we managed to during the first lockdown, we managed to blast through quite a few episodes. We got a good ten episodes out of that every Saturday morning. We recorded. It was a great period where we were looking at all kinds of film music when we didn't have a lot of films to come out, and then it got to. September, I went back to work, working in a school, and, you know, things started, in theory, getting back to normal. But now, we record this middle of January 2021, we're in lockdown three, you know, and as we know, the third film in a in a series is always the worst. Almost always the worst. This, we're in the Godfather three. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was li- I was literally just thinking the same thing. I was like, is, is this the Godfather three of our, of our podcast? It's like, this doesn't bode well, does it? Was like, <laughs> no, especially given it's now the death of Michael Corleone. Like, it just adds the extra <laughs> yeah. cherry on the cake. But yeah, so in the last like three or four months, Sean, how have, uh, how have you been, really, generally, since we last recorded? Well, I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, to think that it's only been four months since it was Tenet, wasn't it, was the last thing that we spoke about, because Tenet was meant to be the great touchstone, the great kind of talisman that would reopen cinemas, that would re-engage audiences with audience with cinemas. A, that didn't exactly work, because unsurprisingly, Tenet didn't take as much money as people thought it would. And then literally about a month and a half after that, in the UK at least, cinemas closed again. And infection rates started rising. And it's amazing to think, I mean, that feels like us talking about Tenet, that feels like it was in a different century now. Yeah. Because so much has yeah. been compressed into those four or five months. But I think I'm really happy to be 
talking about this again and I'm really happy to be talking about 2020 again because disruptive and disrupted as it was there was an extraordinary amount of really interesting creative media that came out in 2020 I know the temptation is to look at 2020 on the surface and think okay that was the year that cinema died that was the year that no films came out I mean there was a lot of really good stuff not just theatrically but on streaming I mean clearly streaming is now going to be the the, the big talking point going forward but there was an extraordinary amount of great film music as well and coming to record on this episode just reinforced to me like wow there was some really remarkable stuff in 2020 don't you think oh god yeah i mean it 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 is going to be remembered as that year mistakenly where nothing happened and nothing came out and you know cinema was destroyed and all this kind of thing but as usual these things are hyperbole the reality is yeah and partly thanks to you know streaming which is supposed to be the the great big evil you know i get i get where people come from with that but you know a lot of a lot of those services did manage to put stuff out and you know we did get you know, we may not have got the some of the biggest marquee films, but we got a hell of a lot of content, and both film and television. You know, and we've got a bit of a, a both in this in this podcast, and we probably could have put more in looking back at 2020. You know, from 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 that, uh, I, there's a couple of things I missed out. You know, that were on TV that were really good. So it's there is there there, there is a lot to warrant with 2020, and I think when when the you know the day is done, people will, will look back and go, yes, okay, we couldn't go to the cinema, we couldn't watch and engage with these things in this on the same terms but there was still plenty to keep us going there was still plenty of great music you know and and i think that is something that a lot of people are yet to maybe fully realize actually because it's hard to do that sort of you know analysis of 2020 we're still too close to it aren't we you know we really are psychologically as well we're still too close to it yeah, the pro- the proximity is an issue. Yeah, because because hindsight is a really powerful thing, isn't it? And I think, but f- from my point of view, looking back on twenty twenty, if we're looking at films that, as opposed to just film music, just for the moment, twenty twenty was a really remarkable year for horror films. There was some really interesting stuff in in the realm of of horror. So, literally, the last one of the, one of the last. Well, the last significant batch of films just after we recorded our Tenet episode, whenever that was, end of August into September, was there were two films that came out. One was called St. Maud, uh, directed by Rose Glass. Another film was called Relic, directed by Natalie Erica James. Both absolutely sublime horror films that realise that horror works best when it's rooted in emotion and character. Uh, and really, 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 in, both in really interesting movies. And it was just a shame that they got caught up in all the, you know, the disruption that happened in this country towards, you know, throughout October. But then earlier in the year, you had the Shudder horror film Host, uh, which I thought was was a real directed by Rob Savage, which is a really interesting movie. And then you go, I mean, you go back even further than that to the start of 2020. You got things like The Lighthouse uh, with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. So that. You know, there were there are trends and there are patterns from 2020 that are worth savouring and worth championing. And to bring it back to our main thing, which is music, that there was an incredible diversity, I think, of, of scores that were variously very, very thematically rich or very experimental. This was a year, like you say, in which there was an, you know, an exponential expansion of what we could watch at home. And that brought that brought us i think closer to 
some really extraordinary um, music done in the realm of, of TV. I mean, it's, it's no longer, you can't use the phrase televisual as a pejorative word anymore because some TV that's coming out on Netflix, Amazon, whatever, has got really glossy like aesthetic to it, really big budgets, and this feeds into the music as well. I mean, I'm going to be touching on that in some of my choices, no doubt you'll be in yours as well. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I think 2020 left us with a lot to savor you know it, it was it wasn't all bad which seems like a bit of a weird thing to say yeah it wasn't all bad <laughs> it seems it's, yeah. it almost yeah. seems really weird to put, say it, put it on the poster it, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all bad yeah well you know i, I suppose the, the best way to sort of qualify that statement is to is to talk about these scores because there you know there there is there is a lot of really good stuff so what we've done is we've picked out our top 10 each and i think what 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 we've done is we've we've tried really to almost compile a twenty best in a way because we've we've not really overlapped except for one instance you know we've kind of and but the reality is there's quite a few on your list Sean that would easily have gone into my top ten as well so I think we've we've really put together a great list of twenty of the best. 19 or 20 of the best pieces of music that we've listened to this year. And there, there, there were things that were missed off that could have been on there potentially. I know for me. So I think there's, I think it's a really good list. So we're going to go through and we're going to do 10 down to one. We're going to go with, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And so this should be good. Hopefully when we'll, we'll try and compile a lot of this stuff into a Spotify playlist as we normally do. And we'll send you the link out for that. And that will hopefully allow you to go down a bit of a rabbit hole and, and enjoy some of this stuff. So, so yeah, let's do it. Why don't you start, Sean, with your 10th best score of 2020? So my number 10 is Devs, uh, composed by Jeff Barra and Ben Salisbury for the uh, the Alex Garland uh, BBC uh, series of the same names. This this was out around April, May time. Alex Garland, obviously the author turned filmmaker, so he wrote The Beach, and then he went on to make extraordinary films like Ex Machina, which was on which that was the first film that he collaborated with. Uh, Barrow and Salisbury. I actually had the interview of do, uh, the pleasure of doing an on-stage interview with them at Bristol's Watershed Cinema, and they were brilliant. They they really explained their their process with that and how that crystalline score was supposed to work with the sound design. It's really interesting chat, and I know they they do tend to get a lot of flack from some of the film music community because you know, they don't necessarily work in thematically rich areas. There's a lot of ambience. There's a lot of you know experimental acoustic electronic textures, what have you. But I thought the score for devs was really interesting. Anomaly, it's a conspiracy thriller series about a sinister San Francisco tech conglomerate that has got this golden hued server at its center, which appears to be able to kind of distort the time space continuum really it allows people to see in the words of the series the the tram lines that were on like what what's coming from the past what's going into the future and it's a really interesting look at like predeterminism and free will and it stars um, nick offerman among among several other actors and the score is brilliant the score is really as one would expect from these guys it's really weird it's incredibly um, mixes all these different tones and crucially what it does is it mixes like a pipe organ with a with a saxophone as far as i could make out to create this really like woozy creepy like strangely quasi spiritual atmosphere and it alludes to the mystery at the center of the story without quite spelling out and obviously as the series goes on this conspiracy starts to get more and more dangerous like more and more paranoid but the the score just keeps you on edge in this sort of subtle 
way and I know it won't be the most popular score of, of 2020 for a lot of people but I thought it did what film and television music is supposed to do it added another layer of residual character to the project and it helped elicit further understanding of what Alex Garland was was driving at so yeah so that's um, my number 10 choice devs by Jeff Barron and Ben Salisbury well I, I haven't listened to this nor have I actually watched devs and th- these are two things that I really want to do because devs was it came out right towards the start of the year I think last mm. year and it, it, it just passed me by last year and, and I've had a few people turn around to me and say devs was really good devs was a great show so yeah, I need, I need, I need to get on this, and especially after what you've just said as well, um, because they're, they're good. They're a good pair of composers, those two. You know, they've done other really good things. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm even more keen to look. I think that's still an iPlayer, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on that really. So my number ten, I've, I've gone. You know, you've gone for something interesting, and you know, uh, you know. Uh, technical and all this and, you know all fascinating and, and deep i've gone for mulan um so is that going to become a really pejorative term oh, oh you've done a, you've done a mulan it's like i don't I've i really do not want you to do a mulan <laughs> yeah well, there, there, there's there's a there's a lot of negativity bound up with this one isn't there to put it mildly yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i mean the, the mulan score is by harry uh, Gregson Williams, and to be honest, I'd probably suggest that the score is one of the better things about the film. To, to be fair, because it's it's one of those it's one of those quite sweeping scores. You know, it's quite big, it's quite grand, it's got a lot lot of nice Chinese instrumentation in there. You know, Eastern instrumentation. You know, it's it's got a level of of bombast and and sweep to it, which is great. You know, which is really good. It's not brilliant, but I I, I found I was much more interested in the score than I was the film when I was listening to it on its own terms because the film. Which obviously, we, I think we talked we talked about this maybe in our last episode or one of them is a uh, was infamous for the fact it went on Disney Plus and it was priced at like sixteen pounds to rent and any everyone almost everyone who what did that went well that wasn't worth sixteen quid you know <laughs> so, <laughs> and it wasn't so it, it it was a film that was fine there's nothing wrong with that film it was just bland it was it was just purely average you know through through and through really which is a shame given it's mulan and obviously this score doesn't hold a torch to the original you know animated score which was by jerry Gold- your, your man jerry big yeah, jerry yeah big jerry. jerry goldsmith you know but I, I enjoyed it for what it was to be fair i thought it was i thought it was a decent score and um did you see mulan i can't remember but, whether you but, saw it I, or not. I didn't see it immediately. I watched it over Christmas when when the the subscription fee on Disney Plus went went out the window in December, and you could just basically access it through your normal Disney Plus account. I watched it then, and I thought it was really poor. I thought the film was really poor, and it really, I mean, quite apart from the fact that it's completely redundant, and you know, people have accused it of being you know, a key turning point in the apparent demise of theatrical exhibition. The fact this was meant to be a great big theatrical release in March 2020, they kind of scuttled it further and further down the release schedule. Then they went, oh, we're not going to release it theatrically at all because we don't know if it's ever going to come out. And this this apparently was emblematic of the death of cinema. I'm taking all that aside. It, it, I thought it was just a rubbish film. It just, it really mangled the whole appeal of the original animation which of course is based on a Chinese ballad anyway but I I think the original Disney animation from 1998 is brilliant because in that 
the heroism of the, of the title character comes from within. She finds that heroism in the in the remake. It's a load of bollocks about oh you've got chi. You know you're kind of gifted with your chi, and it's all about it. it, it it's meant to be kind of more grounded and more realistic, and it makes it more fantastical and more stupid in the manner of, of like, superhero cinema. Not that I'm necessarily having a go at superhero cinema, but I thought it was really shoddy. And but I, I do agree with you that the score works over time to envelop you in this kind of cultural context. And I think there are minor quotes of the Jerry Goldsmith themes and, and the song themes, not really enough to make an impact. But Harry Gregson Williams is a very fine composer. He's done very good scores like Kingdom of Heaven. I think that, yeah, he, he's one of the people that came out of this debacle sort of relatively unscathed. I think it's it's I mean the original Jerry Goldsmith Mulan score I'd say is one of the greatest animated scores of all time it's a masterpiece but then you know I I can't say enough good things about Jerry Goldsmith and when you're when you're following in his footsteps you know you can't help but come off as a something of a pale imitation of that I mean that that's perhaps inevitable really but yeah it's it's certainly I mean if anything deserves to be salvaged from the Mulan remake it's the score I think mm, yeah yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd say I'd agree. I'd agree. It will go in my. I think I've got a Netflix list, or a, a might be a letterbox list of crap films with great scores. It's going in there. Somewhat ironically, Jerry Goldsmith was the king of that. Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith was yeah, the king of those kind yeah. of scores, and Mulan was one of the better films that he scored. So Mulan was the kind of classic place like great film and great composer comes together to create something even more great. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I had I had one of those moments over Christmas when I was watching. Um, uh, I because I, I, after the death of Sean Connery, I've been on a bit of a Connery binge. And I was mm-hmm. watching uh, the wind, the wind and the lion. Yeah, um, which is, I mean, Connery in that plays an Arab, so you can imagine how good that <laughs> film is, right? But the score, the score is brilliant for that film by Goldsmith. So you know, this is this is what happens. That was on telly the other night, and just, just the sheer force of the brass section in that score mixed in with the the percussion is just absolutely still knocks your socks off yeah. even now. It was made back in 1975, but it also mitigates the fact that Sean Connery is on a horse and he's playing an Arab, <laughs> and you know, so he's got a big beard, and so I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's like, okay, Sean, really? Like, it's just, like, it's yeah. just very weird. Why, why are you playing an Arab? Like, it's, it's uh, anyway. Yeah. That's a whole. Other, that's a whole other yeah. podcast. Yeah. Let's let's do our let's do our number nines. What did you go for for number nine, Sean? For you. So, um, my number nine was Lovecraft Country by Laura Cartman, who I I, I had the great pleasure of um, interviewing her for this, and she she's wonderful. So, um, Laura Cartman, I brought this up with her. I said the the thing of hers that I remember the most was her theme for the Steven Spielberg series uh, Taken, which I think was about two thousand two, two thousand three in this country. She wrote the score for that series a sci-fi series about aliens on on earth and uh, lovecraft country um adapts the matt ruff novel of the same name and it's essentially about a group of uh, african-american characters who are forced to negotiate both the specter of uh racial tension in 1950s america and also actual physical lovecraftian like squibbly slimy monsters and what the what the show does is it uses the monsters as an extension of the horrors of racial segregation in america i'd say i think the series was great it's very very different from the book i read the book after i'd watched the series and the book 
Have you have you read it as well? Did you did you? I have. Re- yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the the book has kind of got a bit more of a straight arrow philosophy to it, isn't it? I mean, the idea is in in prose form, you riff on the legacy of H.P. Lovecraft, the author, and the, the philosophy of the book is kind of a bit more easier to discern. Whereas the the show kind of spins out all over the place and actually makes quite a lot of changes, some of which work, some of which don't. And it's a bit yeah. of a contradictory. It's been really well acted, really well shot. I mean, um, um, you know, it's Misha Green, I believe, is, is the showrunner. And, you know, it's it's really ambitious. And clearly, if you're going to put these themes out there, it's important. But to get back to, I mean, Laura Cartman's score is one of the really best things about it. And she described it to me that it's basically a summation of all the things that she likes to translate into um, film music it's about horror it's about romance it's about identity the fact that the show covers so many different kinds of tones although I think that was a problem narratively for the show what it does is it creates a real diversity of tone in terms of the music you go from you know, gentle blues to some sort of you know theremin laden sci-fi to sort of jabby atonal horror in certain sections and the the, the score does a really good job of suggesting the richness of um lovecraft's back catalogue and also the richness of the show and she's you know it's i brought this up with her as well the 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 ratio of women to men working in uh, film and television music is is horribly disproportionate and she said that yeah that there needs to there just there need to be more opportunities for for women film composers to get attached to films like joker because hilda goodnadottir got the oscar for that and she said that's I think Laura Cartman seemed to imply that okay, that was brilliant, but it might be a bit of a blip. You know, that's not necessarily a case that we're, we're establishing a new trend there. But I thought Cartman she did a, she did a wonderful job with this. I thought it was it's a really interesting score. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think you were fairly diplomatic about the show because it is flipping nuts. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> it really is. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I I really enjoyed the book and I did like the show. To be fair, I did enjoy it, but. There were there were episodes that I thought were were fantastic, and there were some that I were like, "What on earth is going on?" Here? <laughs> so it was like it really did. Did, did so, um, it, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Did one of those scenes involve a stiletto? Was was that one? Was that one of those? <laughs> I won't go any further than that because because I was kind of like, "Oh my yeah. god, okay, right, okay, I, so that's, yeah." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, that definitely wasn't in the book. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> Put it that way. No, no. Um, I, I invite, we invite anyone to go and look look it up. Just if you have small yep. children or you have children, just don't watch it with them. Don't, don't okay. go near it. But, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, in fact, just don't watch Lovecraft Country at all with children, to be honest, because it's all a bit a bit dark and, you know, disturbing. But yeah, the, the score is terrific. I mean, I remember we, we, we covered this in an earlier podcast, I think, last year. And uh, yeah, it's 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 really good. It's really good. And, and I... I I think I, I would encourage anyone to go and check out Lovecraft Country because I think the score is good on its own terms, but I think it, it, it does fit as well when you watch it. You know, it, it works really well. So, yeah, that's a really good one. That is a really good one. But that show is nuts. And God knows how they can do more of them. I, I, I'm just like, <laughs> what, what, what have you got left to do? Yeah, like, I, don't, I, know. I don't know what else you do on that now. They've I mean, literally done everything. Yeah, I mean, like once you've opened up new new portals, and you know, there's someone has 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 you know, black a black woman has adopted the skin of a white woman, and then sheds that skin. So I was like, oh my goodness me, I've I've really seen some incredibly provocative and interesting things. Here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll give it that. It it it, it doesn't. It's ten episodes where they just throw everything at you, and I, I'm fair play to them for that. They really, you know, not not enough shows do that really. 
Um, so yeah, good stuff. For my number nine, I've gone for a one of the first things. You know, this is classic Tony on Between the Notes. I haven't always seen what I'm <laughs> what I'm talking about. And there's quite a few on this list I haven't watched. That and the first one is Kajillionaire, which was the film um, American film by Miranda July that came out in 2020 and stars Evan Rachel Wood, Deborah Winger, Richard Jenkins, and they're like a petty crime family. And their relationship is frayed when a, uh, a stranger, a young stranger, joins their their schemes. Quite a quirky film that had, you know, a few some some really liked it, some weren't so sure, you know. But I am looking for quite an indie film, and I am looking forward to watching it actually when I, when eventually it pops up on streaming. But I really really enjoyed the score by uh, a composer who I think I really do think is a rising star, Emil Mosseri, um, Jewish composer, mid thirties. He really, really blew me away with his score for the last black man in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Like, likewise, that that's a that's a brilliant which, score. Yeah, it is a marvelous score, and the film is beautiful as well. If you haven't seen that film, definitely go and check that out because it's gorgeous. It's a great movie. But the score for that was fantastic. Absolutely beautiful. You know, melancholic, haunting, moving, stylish score. And although it's, I wouldn't say Cajillionaire is quite as good, but I really did like the the quirkiness of this and how it sort of, it goes off in different directions. And I, I, it will be interesting to see how it works in tandem with the movie. And I don't think you've seen the film either, have you yet, Sean? But I'm curious to see how this fits with the style of Cajillionaire because it really did impress me. Yeah, I haven't seen the film. I think Miranda July is held by some people, myself included, to be quite insufferable. She makes quite annoying um, <laughs> films. And from, from what I've heard of Cachillian Eric, it very much falls in that bracket. But I thought the score was, was very interesting. It, it actually did, for me, bear quite a lot of similarities with The Last Black Man in San Francisco. There's a lot of elongations, chord suspensions, sort of strange instrumental choices it's not as beautiful as that score because the last no. black man in san francisco the tone of that score was very yearning it's kind of like there's a very yeah. kind of like romantic feel to it this one is a bit colder a bit quirkier i think probably by design of the of the film but yeah mm. emil mosseri is just i mean the, i want direct people to um um a friend of this show amon warman interviewed him for um composer magazine and did a fantastic interview with him uh, about Kajillion Air and about his other mm. works, and that's a really, really good. That's a really good interview. And he's also cool. Emil Mosseri has also scored the upcoming Stephen Yun film uh, Minari, which is getting really good reviews. Ah. Um, it's about a, a, a South Korean uh, immigrant family in America in the in the nineteen eighties. And uh, I don't, I haven't listened to the score. I believe it's on Spotify. I haven't listened to it yet, but the, the film is getting really good reviews. So one can imagine his music will add substantially to the impact of that film. I, I, I feel like he's a bit of a rising star, this guy. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to see what he does. Because um, like, it's a, it, for me, it's a two for two. And I think he's done, he's done some other things. He, he scored the music to the second season of Homecoming, which... I did watch, and that was that was a funny. That's a funny, funny show. That was ba- based on a podcast. It's uh, it, it's a strange show. The, the, the first series starred Julia Roberts. The second starred Janelle Monae, uh, and it's sort of it's this. I don't know if you've come across this, Sean. It's this weird story about a a a, a, a program involving army veterans and or, or a bit like mind control. But it's it's really strange the way it's done. But it didn't it didn't really strike me that it was him actually i didn't really get a sense of that music so but i did in this film and 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 obviously last black man in san francisco so but i I do think i do think this guy is definitely one to watch so i'm looking forward to what he does on minari 
Absolutely. The only other thing I just wanted to raise in Congillion now is there's a really weird distance uh, cover of Mr. Lonely, which is just really, really bizarre. And I can ah, only assume, yeah. I can only assume that, that that plays, that that's performed diegetically within the world of the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I'm probably due to mm. catch up with it at some point. But yeah, that, that's, that's very odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but that's... that could fit the film i guess yeah but we'll see we'll, we'll see when we watch it um all right so watch your number eight then sean let's move on so i've gone for the five bloods by uh, terence blanchard and we discussed oh, yeah. The, yeah so good we, choice we, yeah well, we but i mean people who want to go more in depth on this can go and check out our episode from the middle of last year from the middle of the first lockdown because that's when the film was released onto netflix and we talked about about terence blanchard's music but just just to just to sum up so this is a um, another, another Spike Lee joint about a group of uh, uh, Vietnam War veterans who return to the, fo- the former field of conflict to reclaim the gold that they w- once lost back in the 1970s. And they're all variously grappling with the spectre of, of Vietnam in, in different ways. And then the son of one of their number, played by Jonathan Majors, who was also in Lovecraft Country, turns up um to add further generate generational complexity to the story i have to admit i thought the film was a bit of a mixed bag um i don't think it didn't have the absolute lightning focus of something like black klansman which was the really spike lee's comeback film that that black klansman was just amazing and it has the you've got a very brooding toiling score from terence blanchard as well the five bloods isn't as good as that i think it's narratively confused but i do think the score does do a very very good job of cutting through the tonal inconsistency of, of the narrative and kind of grounding it in a in a philosophy what one of the things i think the score does is it creates a real emotional darkness because obviously it's, it's about the exploitation of, of african-american soldiers in 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 vietnam but the, the score is fundamentally based on quite simple tenets which is that it's about through the brass and the string section creating a kind of emotional identification with these with these characters and i think the the needle drop songs uh are, are what are what are used to kind of connect it specifically with the african-american experience so for example it starts with marvin gay like inner city blues that that's the opening montage song but the score is more has more of a kind of timeless like quintessentially timeless feel um which suggests these kind of in the, the essential emotional underpinning of the story and it, it's militaristic as well it's effectively the film is effectively the dirty dozen it riffs on the dirty dozens there's a lot of real militaristic like brassy action set pieces which to terence blanchard did so well in the likes of um malcolm x which i watched again recently that's got a great score it's a fantastic film so yeah i think you spike lee and terence blanchard are amazing collaborators and this this proves it it proves it again yeah absolutely yeah, I completely agree with that I think Defy Blood's almost made my list actually because I thought that was I really enjoyed the film and Blanchard is just feels like he's really on a streak right now actually in the last few years of the car I mean I know he's, I know he's always been good but he's really sort of He's really sort of produced some fantastic stuff so yeah I think I think I'm, I completely agree there it's great <laughs> One of the things about Terence Blanchard, he's scored the new Regina King movie, One Night in Miami, which is amazing. Yeah, that's a really, yeah. that's a really good film, and there's not that much score in yeah. it. There's, a, I think, there's only about fifteen minutes of score, so it's used very judiciously. But it, it does, it does work wonders in eliciting the the atmosphere between these four 
black icons. So you've got Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali in this imagined scenario in a hotel room where they're all variously, they're all friends, but then they all start arguing. They all have ideological differences. They're at different places in their lives. And Terence Blanchard's music teases that tension out really well. So that, that's really well worth checking out, both the film and the music. 100%. I thought that was great one night in Miami. I, I saw it a few months ago, actually, and it's just come out now as we record. Um, but yeah, really good, really good movie. Definitely one to one to check out. So for my number eight, I've gone again for one I haven't seen, but a film that's a, a film score that really sort of blew me away when I when I was you know putting together a list and listening to things uh, for a film called The Kindness of Strangers by Andrew Lockington, the music film di- written and directed by Lona Scherfig. Uh, good cast: Andrew Riseborough, Zoe Kazan, Bill Nye. Uh, you know, decent ensemble cast, um, and it's a it's a drama that didn't do very well. Came out sort of at the start of the year um, in in the US. Kind of just disappeared, really. I don't think anyone's really seen this uh, ensemble drama. But the music was gorgeous. Like the the music was really sort of classy, and you know, I, it had a, almost a regal feel to me. You know, a hell of a lot of beautiful instrumentation in there and Andrew Lockington is a he is a composer I've heard of um Canadian composer but I I haven't really come across a lot of what he's done and he's done some really 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 like random the kindness of strangers sounds like it could be done by you know a classical English composer and yet this guy's like scored San Andreas and Percy Jackson (laughs) Sea of Monsters like you know (laughs) it's like it's a really strange resume he's got but I thought this was this was a fantastic. Really, really struck me. I was like, "This is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful music." I, I was completely surprised by this because I'd never heard of the film. I wasn't aware that Andrew Lockington was involved in it because I, because I didn't know that the film existed. I don't even remember it coming out over here. So I'm I'm glad that you drew my attention to this because it's gorgeous. It's really, mm. it's incredibly got this really lovely melancholic feel. It almost sounds like the sort of score that maybe Elmer Bernstein would once have done. In that you take a symphony orchestra, yeah. but you. You within the symphony orchestra, you almost take a chamber piece approach to it. You emphasise the solo violin or the piano, and within the symphony, you create a sense of intimacy. I thought it did that really well, and yeah, you're right. I mean, Andrew Lockington normally works on really daft B B movie blockbusters like Rampage. Remember that with the Dwayne Johnson with the, yeah. with the giant gorilla, <laughs> which I, I I actually thought that film was really good fun, but you know, it's just, it was all right. Yeah, 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 it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, for him to come out with something as sensitive as this, I was like, wow, it's 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 a real shame that it was attached to a film that did no business whatsoever and that people already seem to have forgotten yeah. about. But then that's why we yeah. we can at least talk about the score, can't we? That's that's why it's so important to talk about this. There is something to be salvaged from it. And mm. it's, I mean, Andrew Lockington really deserves a lot more of these opportunities, I think, definitely. Yeah, on the basis of this, I would agree. I would agree. So I'd, I'm, we'll, we'll, we'll put a couple of uh, tracks from it in the in the playlist. I would encourage anyone to go and seek this out. Whether or not the film is any good, I mean, it's not very... The aggregate ratings of it aren't very good. So maybe the film's a bit doff, but the score, 100%, absolutely. Go and have a, go and have a look at that one. Number seven, we've uh, just for the for the be- benefit of E. Sean, I've put uh, both of our number sevens together. It's the same one. Yeah, so we can do it at the same time. So we've both gone for uh, an American pickle, which was the Seth Rogen starring um, comedy sort of drama. We did talk about this on an episode during the uh, the lockdown last year when it came out in America. Still hasn't really come out much in the UK. Obviously, to rent it has, but it hasn't come on streaming yet. So I haven't seen Amer- an American Pickle. But this was uh, scored by Nami Melomad and uh, 
Michael Giacchino, and it was it was a bit of a, a, a he operated, I think, as a bit of a mentor in in this um, in this film, didn't he? Really, and it, and it's it's a it's a lovely score, and in fact, you know, Nami Melamed may well be listening because she has said she she listened to one or two of our episodes. So, Nami, if you're listening, <laughs> hello. Hello. Hope you hope you're safe and well, and uh, mm. <laughs> thank yeah. you for listening. And yeah, we had to put this score in our top ten, I think, because this was this was lovely, absolutely lovely score. I I was completely charmed by this, and I think that I, I really liked the film as well. The film was out very briefly, as it turns out, in the UK. It was out sort of mid to late August throughout September, and I did get to see it on the big screen. This was one of the very very few films I did get ah, I did get to see yeah. theatrically last year, and I the film really surprised me. I thought. It was sentimental, but in in a, in an honest, it was it wasn't mawkish, cheesy sentimental. It was honest. It's about the idea of you know this displaced nineteenth century Jewish immigrant who ends up embalmed in a, in a vat of pickles. Then he, he's he's he's, come, he's he's unthawed essentially in the twenty first century, and he seeks out his only surviving relative, both of whom are played, but both characters played by Seth Rogen. And I thought that central device worked really well. I thought it was sweet. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was it was dramatic when it needs to be. The film really surprised me. And the score is is lovely. Um, clearly based on based on and around Jewish folk tradition because that's the whole idea. Because the nineteenth century Seth Rogen character comes from this kind of you know historic background of you know he's he was centrally connected to his homeland whereas the modern day Seth Rogen character has kind of lost a sense of that and it's like how do you thread that sense of Jewish tradition through the music through the clarinets you know through through the strings and so on and I thought Nami Melamad did a really 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 good job as I understand it Michael Giacchino I think wrote the outline of the main theme and then Nami Melamad embellished that and fleshed it out and wrote the rest of the music and the score that's how I understand it it's a re- I mean, it's, 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 it does a really good job of establishing a very kind of singular ethnic identity without being grating or kind of false, I think. And I think in the context of the film, it augments the melancholy and the comedy of, of the movie really well. I mean, comedy scores are a really hard thing to get right because you can either score comedies in a kind of quite annoying, zany way, which can work, or you can score comedies in a very, very deadpan, straight-faced way. Think of something like Elmer Bernstein with with Airplane. Uh, and this, I think, is you know, it, it feel it feels more like a drama score with comedy elements. If you know what I mean, mm, if, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think that's that's kind of what I took away from it. It was it was not it wasn't what i thought it would be absolutely and it sounds like the film is much the same actually from what you you know from what you've described but i yeah i was really taken by it i was really really surprised so yeah i th- i think i think it deserves a place on this list absolutely but yeah if you want to hear us talk about this in more detail we we did cover it i think it might have been the same episode we talked about lovecraft country actually so they're both sort of on there from around the august time of last year so go back a couple of episodes and check that out as well because it's uh, it's really good Number six, then, Sean. Let's. Uh, we've now. I don't think we we've got the same ones. I think we're all completely separate now. So we're, <laughs> we'll cover a fair few more. Yeah. So what have you gone for for number six? I've gone for Mank by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and this was obviously the the really um, you know, fated uh, Netflix release that came out uh, in uh, December 2020. So it's directed by David Fincher, a black and white movie, nominally about the writing of Citizen Kane based on a screenplay by David Fincher's late father, Jack. 
uh, which as I understand it was then revised because I think his father actually wrote this in uh, some time ago and then it's been subsequently revised since then this is clearly you know it really really anticipated it's been based on the history of Citizen Kane shot in black and white directed by David Fincher with a remarkable cast led by Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz the the writer of Citizen Kane you know the, the Orson Welles movie that's held up as by still by many as the greatest film ever made so I kind of went into it thinking I love everything about that pitch everything about that pitch is screaming best film of the year for me potentially regardless of whether it's on netflix or theatrical and i watched it and i was left a bit cold by it i was kind of like, oh okay i don't really think it worked as an illuminating insight in citizen kane or as a character study it kind of fell between two stools in those things i mean technically brilliant though it is i mean it, it, of course it is it's a david fincher film it's going to look and sound absolutely gorgeous and it really does ape the backstage um production lot politics of the of the time but i i wasn't emotionally connected to it i felt distanced from it and i thought it's a project that was probably very personal to david fincher but unusually for a david fincher film i didn't it didn't speak to me and he's one of my favorite directors but um the, the score is an interesting proposition because as I said, it's by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Trent Reznor, uh, uh, formerly of, of Nine Inch Nails. And um, they've worked with David Fincher since The Social Network. They got controversially got an Oscar for that. And they famously dwell in very turbulent, ambient uh, landscapes. They don't deal in the area of uh, necessarily of symphony, of melody, of, of orchestra. There's nothing inherently wrong with that because not all film scores need to sound like that. And there's a history of, of film and television music that's very, very strange and very experimental. I mean, you think of, um, you know, what Delia Derbyshire did with the Doctor Who theme, you know, where she she basically got looped, she got like looped sounds. There was a documentary about that that came out last year as part of the London Film Festival um sort of drama documentary, which was really interesting, which highlighted that. So film music isn't beholden to being one thing, but that, you know, just because of that doesn't necessarily mean that all the scores they've done for David Fincher have been particularly interesting i mean i think the social network definitely had its had its moments but this is a completely different proposition it's it's essentially a 1920s 30s 40s swinging jazz score and to the extent it's it's such a departure from what they've done before that a lot of people on um film music like message boards film music forums have come out and have gone well clearly the credit for that deserves to go to the orchestrator Comrade Pope, who is one of the greatest orchestrators in Hollywood. He's worked variously with people like John Williams. He's a really remarkable man. And a lot of people have said, well, clearly Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor do not have the compositional nous to come up with a score that deals so intricately in jazz rhythms, in really luscious waltzes, in really like lovely Bernard Herman-esque chord suspensions. I'm like, well... I mean that's a it's a bit snooty. I think that attitude is is a, is a bit snooty. I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean one has to think, for example, when Danny Elfman Danny Elfman came from pop and rock music. He was he was with Oingo Boingo, and he went into film scoring largely because his orchestrators at the time, like the orchestrators and conductors like Steve Bartek, Shirley Walker, they kind of tra- they made it clear to him what was possible to do with an orchestra, but it was still his voice but they just made it possible. So I don't really get on board with this snobbery and about 
Reznor and Ross. I think, you know, it's the, the album is way too long. It's way too long. It's about an hour and a half. There is too much music in it, which seems like a strange thing to say. But and a lot of it kind of just reinstates um, a lot of standalone jazz pieces that don't necessarily suggest any kind of on underlying theme or narrative. It's more it's more a score of, of the period. It's more about just reflecting the trappings of the period. But there are themes in it. There is that Bernard Hermanesque theme that gets into the head of, of Herman Mankiewicz with with its very moody arresting strings there's a track called San Simeon Waltz which is what I think one of the most beautiful pieces of music from last year I was like wow I mean I'm you know I'm, I don't think it's untoward to say that they could have come up with this I mean clearly Comrade Pope must have had a role in there somewhere but yeah I th- I think the score is 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 definitely one of the, one of the best things about this film. I mean, have you have you heard this? Did you, did you see the film? I did. I did. I uh talked about it a fair bit on motion pictures our other we made this uh, show uh with Carl Sweeney uh, just before Christmas. It's it, I mean think David Fincher is again. I, I agree with a lot of your sentiments about the film. You know, David Fincher is one of my favorite directors, but this is I think when I ranked it on Letterboxd, it was only one above Alien 3 <laughs> in comparison <laughs> with all of his yeah. films. And that's not to, and to be fair, that is that, you know, even Mank got a three and a half out of five, you know, for me. So it's not to say that it's a bad film. It's not. It's a very good film, I think. But it's not my favourite. It's, it's one of the wor- It's one of the least great Fincher films, let's put it that way, I think. For for those reasons, you know, it's it's a bit messy. It's a bit all over the place. It's it's not. I think you're right when you say it's not one thing completely or the other. You know, I think I think a lot of people thought it might be a bit more of about Citizen Kane than it actually was. And I think if it had been, it might have been a slightly better movie. But no, I did enjoy the score. I thought I thought I thought it was I thought it was very good. It, it is interesting what you say there about you know Reznor and Ross. I mean, I, I've I really like I've really liked what they've done for so long. You know, I loved what they did on the girl with the dragon tattoo. You know, I love what they did on Gone Girl. I love what I've loved. That last year, I love what they did on Watchmen. You know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of theirs. So I'm. I don't think this is their greatest stuff that they've done. Oh, and the Social Network as well. Again, brilliant, great stuff. So you know, I think, yeah, it's not my favourite, but I did enjoy, I did enjoy the score and I did enjoy the film. But yeah, I I, I just I just still want David Fincher to make Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. To be <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah. the one I want to see. Oh, there's the other one that he apparently had on the go. Was it Rendezvous with Rama, the, the sci-fi project? Yeah. Which apparently oh. that that is, yeah. I don't even know if he's still Arthur attached C. to Clark. that. Yeah. No, no. I, I, can you imagine? I mean, yeah. I mean, that that see, he, what could be his two thousand and one, couldn't it? You know. Yeah. Yeah, come on, come on, Dave. <laughs> Give the <them laughs> people then, what they want. You know, then you can get a Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score that goes into space, which would be quite an interesting proposition, <laughs> I think. Yeah, God knows what they come up with for that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that'd be like, wow. <laughs> That's like crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Fincher does next. Let's just hope it doesn't take him like six years or whatever, you know, between films. So, yeah, I've gone for my number six. I, I Now, I, I toyed whether to put this in or not, and I, I think in the end... I I went for this because I I was surprised at how much I liked both the film and the score. I've gone for Bad Boys for Life by Lorne Balfe. Now, I, it, it previously, like, well, firstly, the first Bad Boys, two Bad Boys films are crap. Number one, right? I don't <laughs> like them at all. Uh, I think they're rubbish. The score, scores were fine by Mark Mancina, but they neither of them really, you know, particularly 
blew me away. I think I think he did both of them. Oh, I don't know if Hans Zimmer did any of them, but it, I think I think they're both Mark Mancina. I'm, I'm sure um, Zimmer was probably involved in a backroom capacity I, somewhere. I, yeah, I think he might have been because there's definitely that Zimmer-esque kind of thing that you get with obviously Lorne Belt. He's done a lot with Zimmer. Now, Belt for me, like blew the roof off with Mission Impossible Fallout. Like that is that is one of my favourite scores of all time. I think now the amount I've listened to that is a, is ridiculous. So I, I actually think he's really good. And I, and I, I thought he brought, because he brings the Mark Mancini sort of bad boys theme into this score. And yes, it's, you know, very, it's very bad boysy. It's very, you know, big. It's electronic. It's, you know, it's got all this thing going on, you know. It really it sounded like you were being attacked from an alien from Lovecraft Country. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's not It's not in any way nuanced, but then nor is the film. And to be fair, I think Bad Boys for Life is by far the best film of the three. Like, it, it's... it's it, I, 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 I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was entertaining for what it was. I mean, it's ridiculous, obviously. But it knows that it's a bit daft. And I, I, think, I, I think I appreciated that about the film. And I, I, even, I even found Martin Lawrence tolerable, tolerable in that film. And God, that's the first time ever, I think. So, so you know, I was surprised. So I did enjoy it. Although the, the alternate one for Balf you could have put on here was his score for His Dark Materials Season 2, which is really good, even though, I'm, I, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of that. I, I don't think that show is great. It doesn't do the books justice for me. It's fine. It's average. But the score for that is really good. Um but yeah, I, I I don't know if you've seen or heard this, Sean. But I was I thought, do you know what? I'm going to throw this in there, as uncultured it, it may seem. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Well, let me just say first that I haven't seen the film because this came out right at the very start, so January 2020 BC, as in before yeah. coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> so, and I rather naively at that point thought, right, there are a lot of other films around at that point, including Oscar-worthy Oscar <laughs> movies like 1917. I'm not going to go and see Bad Boys because you know what? There's going to be a lot of great movies in 2020, and I'm not going to kick myself <laughs> about. It. Oh, how wrong was I uh, about that? <laughs> jinx so, it! Jinx <laughs> I, did, I did jinx it. Um, and actually, on on that note, this this is this isn't this isn't related to Bad Boys for Life. This is really weird. Um, I don't know whether I'm reading too much into this. This is slightly tongue in cheek, but I around the end of September into October last year, I reviewed a very weird and I didn't think particularly good quasi mockumentary movie called Antrim, which is allegedly about the most cursed movie oh, ever made. Yeah. Did you hear about this? I've um, heard about this. Yeah. And they attempt to do a kind of Blair Witchy thing to kind of build this reputation about this, you know, this film within a film that's allegedly cursed and it caused, you know, like various cinemas to burn down and everything. And I watched it. I thought, well, you know, aesthetically, it's interesting. It's a shame that you can't really capture that sense of surprise that Blair Witch did so brilliantly because you can get access to too much information too early now. <laughs> but mm. weirdly, after, yeah. I, after I watched that, literally about sort of four or five days after I watched that, all all of the cinemas started to close again. <laughs> so I was like, oh, hang on, hang on a minute. Have I, have I invoked something here? <laughs> it's like, it's like did, did, did I do a bad thing by watching that movie? Did I, I mean, I, nothing, yeah. <laughs> nothing happened to you, me you, personally. <laughs> so, you know, let's, let's forget, forget Bill Gates, forget the Chinese, forget George Soros. You created coronavirus. I, I did this. this. It's, 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 it's my yeah. fault. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. 
um, I, I, sh- I should not have taken that opportunity to review Antrim and I, I warn everyone do not warn Antrim do not watch Antrim because <laughs> cinemas might never open again <laughs> so yeah we don't want lockdown four yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah we really don't want that um no, I digress. We all remember lethal. We all remember lethal weapon four. You know, we don't need lockdown <laughs> yeah, four. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And we, we're not going to have Mel Gibson and Danny Glover to get us out of this, no. this situation. So, no. um, have, you, have you heard they're doing another one? Like Richard Dunner is like about five thousand yeah, years old, but they're yeah, doing like, I, no, that's, I know, that's never I mean, going to happen, surely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Mel Gibson pretty much looks like he's a pillar of salt now, doesn't he? As well, I and mean, it's kind of like <laughs> just like. I mean, I mean, really. I mean, how, what, what, how, how, how are they going to do that? Because those movies involve things called stunts and being physically in shape <laughs> and firing guns. And I mean, I just—is someone taking the piss? I, I just don't yes. really. Like, <laughs> they are. They are. They actually are. It'll never happen. It'll never it happen. Won't. Well, you know. Like, but then they, we'll they've, been, they've been banging the drum for Indiana Jones Five, aren't they? Apparently, that's meant to be shooting now. Is it? It's meant yeah. to be shooting like right Soon. now. Yeah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll believe it when I see God knows. it. I mean, um, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, believe it when we see it. Definitely, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what was I talking? Oh, bad boys. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, bad boys. So, bad boys, yeah. so this became one of the outlying films that I thought. Well, I'm not going to see it at the time because, frankly, it looks terrible, and I don't want to distract myself when there are going to be so many other good films in 2020. That was a big mistake. Um, and as, as it turns out, I still haven't I still haven't seen Bad Boys for Life. I don't really have anything against the first two movies, despite the fact that they're directed by Michael Bay, who is generally quite odious. Uh, so, um, and the, the score by Lorne Balfe, I thought was was really really good fun. I've listened to it in isolation, away from the film, and much as I said about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, there is a lot of snobbery aimed at Lorne Balfe, and I think a lot of it. This is, comes from like film music forums and people online, and I think a lot of people just need to grow up and it, it really it doesn't help and I think that admittedly Lorne Balfe has done a lot of scores that I've found quite poor and a lot of quasi sort of sub Hans Zimmery stuff because he came out of the remote control Hans Zimmer's remote control studio that was once actually called Media Ventures around the time that the first Bad Boys came out in 1995 so Lorne Balfe has done a lot of those kind of diet Hans Zimmer scores like Terminator Genesis and Pacific Rim Uprising which I don't think are very interesting but he has done and is increasingly doing some really interesting stuff I I really love what he does on his dark materials that was really close to getting into my list actually i know that you're not a fan but i think his scores for that he really found his niche of that it's a really sumptuous elegiac fantasy score i think okay lawn balf can do this stuff really really well and he's done some very very fine scores i think like the lego batman score and things and i thought mission impossible fallout hit the mark in places it's not a terrible score which a lot of people seem to think it is but i would put Joe Kramer's work for Rogue Nation is the absolute highlight of any of the scores from the Mission Impossible movies, personally. But um, I, the the Bad Boys for Life score, I thought it sounded like a John Powell score. I mean, clearly there is a Hans Zimmer kind of influence in there. The, the use of the the percussion, the the sort of mul- the multifaceted percussion, I thought sounded a bit more like a John Powell action comedy score. You think of something like Night and Day or or, or something like that, but. Yeah, it's it's yeah. You're right. It's it's got it's got an awareness to it. The music's got an awareness to it. It is overblown in the manner of so many action scores done in the mould of Hans Zimmer. Whereas a lot of those scores are very pompous and take themselves quite seriously and are just very loud for the sake of being loud. This does have a sense of humour to it. It's got a sense of swagger to it. 
And I think there are enough instrumental nuances in it to suggest that Lorne Balfe knew exactly what he was doing with it. And clearly it's not a film that's designed to be taken seriously, but it's good to hear that the score doesn't just add volume for the sake of adding volume. And again, I haven't seen the film, but I think that the score is actually relatively listenable and entertaining. So yeah, I thought this this was a really good choice on your part. Glad to see it in there. Yeah, uh, thanks. I was surprised, really. On both, I, I could say on both counts. So I'm, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I went for it, though. Yeah. So when we came to the end of this look at 2020 in film music. Sean and I realised we'd recorded a solid two-hour episode and we quickly decided that for your listening ease and to extend the experience a little, we could break the episode up into two parts, which means we invite you to next week return for our countdown from five to one of our best scores of 2020. But until then, thanks for listening to us talk about the music of cinema and TV between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This... The time is now. A Millennium Podcast. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I will say that Rise of the Machines um, also kind of like argues against... Um, Terminator 2, of course. Back to no, where, where it was. Like Rise of the Machines like then goes, <laughs> maybe they're both right and shrugs its shoulders. It's like, maybe you can prevent Judgment Day, but only for a little while. And it's like, that's not an argument. Pick a side. Pick a lane. You can either change the past or you can't. None of this wishy-washy. You can change it sometimes, but you can't really change it. So it all balances out. Yeah, no, pick a pick a damn side. <laughs> Don't say the C word. On the back of my right arm, I have a tattoo of Phil Collins. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the front cover of No Jacket Required. Um, <laughs> This was the one that I expected you to pick, I'll be honest with you. Because yeah. it is my favourite of your tattoos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a tattoo I got as a joke. A, a lot of my tattoos that I've got, a lot of, well, a lot of everything that I do <laughs> is because it's a joke or if, if I think something's funny. We buy records. Eric Clapton and Van Morrison have released an anti-lockdown song. How, how do you think about this? Where does this sit on the shitometer? I think it redefines the shitometer. Right. I just, you know, I mean, so I think it's raising money for musicians who are affected by the lockdown and the lack of gigs, etc. Mm-hmm. Which is a good thing. Yep. But then you see Van Morrison and Eric Clapton a bad thing so right do you know what I mean I mean I love I yeah. love Van Morrison's music I don't particularly like Eric Clapton's music I quite like the 60s stuff but I you know they're a couple of whinging old men aren't they old man babies complaining that they can't go and lick whoever they want Ooh. I know but that's what they're singing about I think I haven't I haven't checked that I assume that the lyrics are about you can take it as read that I haven't heard it <laughs> It's not likely to have a banging donk on it, is it? It's unlikely to have a banging donk. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.
Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Thank you.